0: And the promises of God. Now, that is the primary question facing us in our study of Galatians. The Galatians had come to Christ on the basis of a promise. Paul told them that God promised to forgive their sins and would become their friend eternally if they would express faith in his son if they would acknowledge that they had sinned and were unable to pay for that sin, but that Jesus could pay for their sin and, in fact, had done so on the cross. And that if they would spiritually join Him on the cross, die to self and bury the old man in a grave of baptism and let Him live His life through them, they could live with Him forever. That was the gospel, the good news. And it was based on what Christ had done, not on what they had done. That's not to say that they had nothing to do. Obviously, they had to accept the offer and allow Christ to come into their life. And doing so would change them dramatically. It would alter their behavior in many ways. But they did not earn God's friendship by agreeing to accept His offer. By accepting the offer, they merely demonstrated they had faith, that they trusted in the One making the offer, and that they wanted to receive the promises made available through it. So the Galatians had come to God through faith in His promises, Promises made available through his son. But then the Judaizers came to town. They said, all fine and good, but don't forget the law. It's true, God has made many promises, but he also made some laws. And they convinced the Galatians that they had to obey the law to receive the promises. Now, that made sense to the Galatians, and they began searching out God's laws with a little help from their newfound friends, and they tried to obey them. The men were making appointments for their circumcisions. The Ten Commandments were tacked on the wall, and they began watching what they ate and with whom they fellowshiped. In short, they became Jewish. They entered into the same kind of relationship with God that the Jews had had for 1,500 years. And they felt good about it. They felt special. They felt religious. Paul, on the other hand, was horrified by what they had done. In fact, he said they had been bewitched. By going back to the law, they had said, in effect, that God's grace wasn't sufficient, that what Christ did on the cross was not enough, and that if a man really wanted a relationship with God, he would have to earn it through obedience to the law. The problem with that, of course, is that no one can do so. No one can perfectly obey the law. And since no one can do so, the law ends up condemning us. It doesn't give life. It puts everyone under a curse. The question then is why was it given? You no, know, Paul's already made it clear that Abraham came into relationship with God by faith, by trusting in the promises of God. So, why did God later give Moses the law? And what effect did the law have on the promise? The Judaizers argued that since the law came after the promise, that the promise was conditioned by the law. But Paul is going to counter their argument in classic rabbinical style and show the real reason the law was given. Let's see if we can follow his thinking and come to a proper understanding of the relationship between the law and the promise. We're studying in Galatians chapter 3, where Paul begins by making it clear that the law didn't change the promise. Galatians three fifteen through 18. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. What I'm saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it's no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Now, you may have noticed that Paul changes the tone of his letter here, you know, rather than continuing to refer to them as foolish Galatians, he calls them brethren. In spite of their poor theology, they were still his brothers in Christ. And he knew that they did not understand the implications of what they had bought into. So it begins explain it in human terms, using an illustration from life that he knew they would understand. He asked them to think about a covenant, a contract, a will. And he pointed out that once such a document is ratified, it cannot be changed unless all parties agree. One person can't set it aside or add conditions to it. And the promises that we all want to share in were spoken to Abraham. In fact, God entered into a covenant with Abraham. He said he would bless him, befriend him, give him an everlasting homeland, and bless all nations through him. And Abraham agreed to the terms of the covenant. The covenant was between Abraham and God. It wasn't limited just to that. The covenant extended beyond Abraham himself. It was for Abraham and his seed. Now, the term seed, when used in this context, refers to a man's offspring. And the Jews were obviously Abraham's seed. They, therefore, insisted that the promises made to Abraham were promises made to them. And the Judaizers had convinced the Gentiles in Galatia that if they wanted to benefit from those promises, they would have to become Jews. Now, Paul's argument against them is a little tricky for us to follow because he resorts to some rabbinic hair splitting. He ignores the fact that the word seed, when referring to someone's offspring, is actually a collective noun. It refers to more than one. But then he makes a point out of the fact that God didn't say the promise was to Abraham's seeds, plural, but to his seed. (laughs) And that ultimately, Abraham's seed was a reference to Christ, the one through whom Abraham's promise would be made available to all nations. Now, we don't have to buy his rabbinic logic to understand the point he's making which is simply that the promise to bless all nations finds its fulfillment in Christ, and that it's not a promise that applies to all of Abraham's seed or seeds. He then points out that the law, which he said came 430 years later, does not invalidate the covenant previously ratified. Now, The fact that Paul apparently got his 430 years from the Greek translation of the Old Testament and not by adding up the years we find in the chronologies of the Hebrew Bible need not concern us too much. We'll let the scholars debate the possibility of a 200-year error here. The point Paul is making is that the law came hundreds of years After the promise, and therefore cannot be a condition to it. That God didn't give a promise to Abraham and then qualify it through Moses. That he didn't tack on some conditions to his promise several hundred years after the fact. Besides, making the promise conditional upon obedience to the law would, in effect, take away the promise. A relationship with God would no longer be something God promised to make available to us. It would be something we have to earn. And as Paul has been making perfectly clear, we could never earn standing as a friend of God through obedience. Now, that's not to say that there cannot be conditions in a covenant. Now, if the original covenant contained conditions, those conditions remain. And they do not change the promise into something we have to earn. Our faith-only brethren apparently overlook this point. They insist that to condition our reception of God's gift by anything, baptism in particular, is to reduce the promise into something earned through obedience. But baptism is not a work that merits salvation. It's merely the way God has instructed us to accept the gift He wants to give us. It's the way we enter into the covenant with God. And contrary to the assertions of some, God's promises are always conditional. Even His promises to Abraham were conditional. In the twelfth chapter of Genesis, we find God's first words to Abraham, Go forth, and I will bless. If Abraham had not gone forth, he wouldn't have been blessed. In the seventeenth chapter, God says, Walk before me and be blameless, and I will establish my covenant between me and you. Now, God isn't insisting that Abraham be sinless in order to enter into a covenant with him, that would be impossible. But what God is insisting is that Abraham meet the conditions of the covenant and that he be faithful to it. And one of those conditions was circumcision. If Abraham wanted to accept the offer of friendship with God, he had to acknowledge it through circumcision, a physical act. That would set him apart from those not in a covenant relationship with God. Now, the Jews would eventually forget the real significance of circumcision, and Paul will argue that what God really wanted wasn't a physical circumcision, but a circumcised heart. But that did not invalidate the need for physical circumcision, as a sign of the Abrahamic covenant, the Old Covenant. And those who today insist that physical baptism is not important, that God's only concern is spiritual immersion into him, are making an assertion that is not supported by Scripture. If God made baptism a condition of the New Covenant... We have no right to change the terms of the covenant. We can no more take conditions away from the covenant than the Judaizers could add conditions to it. The law was not given as a condition for the promise. The law was fulfilled by the promise. Verses 19 and 20. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Now, admittedly, this is kind of tough, okay, to sort through here. And while Paul says that the law was given because of transgressions, we really can't be absolutely certain what he meant by that. There's a lot of debate about that. But I believe he is simply saying that Abraham's descendants were not abiding by the conditions of the covenant. That they were transgressing it. They weren't expressing The same kind of faith and trust in God that Abraham had expressed. They weren't acting like friends of God. They may have assumed they were friends of God because of the relationship to Abraham, but in reality they had ceased being God's friend. They weren't listening to him. They weren't trusting him. And their behavior made it obvious that they were not in a relationship with him. In fact, they had been cut off from access to God, but didn't know it. So God commissioned angels to work through a mediator, Moses, to make them aware of the fact that they were not in fellowship with the holy God. And the law made them keenly aware of their inadequacies. It pointed out just how far they had transgressed against the will of God. In fact, it was the law itself that made them, technically, into transgressors. Because you can't actually transgress the law until the law has been given. Now, you can still fall short by not meeting an expected standard, but you cannot be a transgressor until the standard is written down in black and white, or engraved on stone. And Abraham's descendants had strayed so far from the standard of faith and trust that he had established that it was necessary to write it down. Only then would they realize just how far they had drifted out of fellowship with God. The law, therefore, was given to make us realize where we stood in relation to God, to make us realize just how far we had transgressed against him. It was not given as the basis whereby we could gain a relationship with God. All it did was make us painfully aware how out of fellowship with him we are. After all, a relationship with God can never be earned. It can only be granted. And God promised such a relationship to Abraham and his seed. And it was through his promised seed that God fulfilled that promise. He fulfilled his promise to make his blessings available to all peoples through his Son. And since that fulfillment came through his Son, there was no need for a mediator between God and his Son. No need for a Moses to stand between God and man and bring them back into relationship. It was a covenant made by God himself. God fulfilled his promise through his son, through himself. And there was no need for a mediated law anymore. A law that would make us realize just how alienated we were from God. But once the promise was fulfilled... And we entered into the relationship with God on the basis of faith. And what he did for us through his son, the law was no longer needed. It had served its purpose. Because the law leads us to the promise. Again, this is tough stuff, okay? I hope you're staying with me here. Because it is important. Verses 21 and 22. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up all men under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Is the law contrary to the promises of God? Absolutely not. The law is not an alternative way to God. If the law had been able to impart life, if man could gain eternal life through obedience to the law, then righteousness would have been based on the law and all would have to come to God through the law. The law made it obvious. That no one could come to God through law. No one could obey every law of God. And the more one would try, the more frustrated he would become, the more obvious his imperfections would be. But that is not a failure of the law. That's what the law is supposed to do. The law as revealed in Scripture, is intended to shut all men under sin, to condemn them and make them see how out of fellowship they are with a holy God. And that is what the law did. The law showed us that it was impossible to earn a standing of righteousness before God. And it made us willing to accept the promise. The promise that by trusting in what Christ did for us on the cross, God would consider us to be acceptable. The law led us to the promise. Because it closed off all other approaches to God. It made it obvious that all roads to God were dead ends except for one. The only way to God is through his son, the promised seed of Abraham. The law then forced us to trust in the seed of Abraham, to trust in the promises made to him and made available through him. The law made us realize he is the only way to God. So, again, what's the relationship between the law and the promise? The bottom line is simply that the law led us to the promises made available through Christ. So, no, we don't have to fulfill the requirements of the law to enter into a relationship with God or to maintain that relationship. We dealt with that a couple of weeks ago. A lot of times, Christians. Assume that they're saved by grace, but then they have to save themselves by works after the fact. No, that's not true either. Our relationship is on the basis of a promise. But, as we've noted, there are conditions to the promise. Our covenant with God had some conditions in it when it was offered to us. If we want to accept his offer, we must accept it the way he has told us to. If we want to accept his offer, he expects us to demonstrate our relationship with him through expressions of our faith and through the holy lifestyle he makes possible through his Spirit. Doing so is not earning salvation. It's merely accepting the terms of the covenant he wants to make with us. Now, again, this is kind of a, a technical study. But I hope you understood the importance of it. We're not saved by obedience to the law. We're saved by faith in what Christ did. The promises were made to Abraham and his seed, which was Christ. And it's through him we embrace those promises. Now, he's told us how to embrace them. He doesn't say, just say, okay, I believe it. He told us how to accept it. And doing so, surrendering to what he has told us to do to accept it, is not a work that merits salvation. Don't let anyone convince you that that obeying Christ in baptism is, is, is something you do to earn salvation. It's not. It's simply a way to say, I want this. I'm willing to accept this. I'm willing to enter in to what Christ did on the cross and share in the benefit of his sacrifice. What a privilege that is. That's not foreign to faith. That's an expression of faith. And then obviously, once we come into Christ, our life must reflect our relationship with a holy God. That means we are going to look at the law. We're going to go back to the Old Testament. We're going to read it. We're going to see what it is that God wants us to be like. And we're going to do all that we can through the power of his spirit To to reflect the changes made possible through Christ. But we're never going to slip into that no man's land of thinking we've got to be good enough to earn a relationship with him. Our relationship with Christ was made on the basis of a promise and it stays there. And that's what gives us hope. That's what gives us assurance. That's what enables us to say thank you. And to worship him. And to praise Him. And to live for Him with joy. Not with some heavy hand of threat and alienation from God. The joy we have in Christ comes from understanding this pretty technical text. I pray you've got it. Because it makes all the difference in the world. We trust in what He did. And through the power of His Spirit, we do seek to obey Him. But our obedience, again, is not a backdoor into relationship. It's simply an expression of what we want to do now to honor what he's given to us. Trust and obey is still a good song. Let's stand and sing it together.